Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. All right. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, here we are in the beautiful studio. How do you feel? I feel good. I, we've always maintained six feet of separation, but yeah. actually six feet of separation in person is is <laughs> nicer than... Yeah. Yeah. It is. No, it's, uh, you know, for the listeners out there, I'm sure that the, the, the quality of sound has certainly been good, but now it should be even better back to the way it was uh, pre-quarantine because we were over, you know, the virtual world. And now here we are in person and it feels great. Yeah. I'm all for it. Yeah. No, and actually speaking of in person, I had... Uh, lunch today in city center with uh, a customer and uh it, it was it was amazing and and to interact and had we basically had the whole restaurant to ourselves the service was impeccable <laughs> right yeah there was no wait at all you couldn't valet which is totally fine i don't mind doing the old brisk walk but uh yeah it, it was it was there wasn't very many people in city center um but it just to be in a restaurant um to be served with someone with a mask and gloves was kind of odd but uh, just the the socializing in the company was just uh, you know it, it's the little things that count and it was certainly a pleasure so it's it's cool to see that we're slowly getting back to quote unquote normal. So have you been out to a restaurant yet, Matt, or a bar or anything? I went out to a restaurant and um, you know they had all the tables spread out and they kept trying to offer me hand sanitizer, which I accepted. <laughs> not every time, but um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it seems like they have a pretty good process for, I, I know there's regulations and that sort of thing. They seem to have a, a pretty good process. It was one of those, um, I think for me, I just get, uh, I know everybody's all over the place with their opinions on what the right thing to do is. And, you know, sure. we're all probably partially right and partially wrong. But um, I think just, I'm anxious to try and support you know, there's a coffee shop in our neighborhood. And yes, I don't buy $5 coffee very often. But when this kind of went and they were, open. You can't sit inside or anything still, but mm-hmm. my wife and I go at least once a week, just on a little coffee date, Yeah, just, just to support them. And, um, so I get, I get particularly, you know, I don't know, antsy if you will, for, you know, shift workers, hourly workers, where you, you just know that, um, they've been hit especially badly and I want to support them, but I'm also trying to, you know, not overdo it with of course. maximum exposure. Yeah. So, but it was neat to be in a restaurant like the it, it's sort of that just something feels new and normal again. <laughs> yeah. Um and, and I think you're right about like just being face to face with people. I think anybody who's been working remotely and been on video conferences and that sort of thing, I've read plenty of articles about how exhausting it is because you're trying to read nonverbal cues yes. over a monitor and that wears you out. But I think the other part of it is just to see somebody smile or to crack a joke or um, to do the things that I think we were created to do in human interaction that um, we actually get to do is so refreshing. It is. Uh, Just like morale, perspective, whatever. If you have a small business and can get everybody together and everybody's comfortable standing six feet or more apart and just, I don't know. Yeah. laughing together for a few minutes and then go back to work in your remote location, whatever, just, I think it's huge for morale. I hope that we can get more comfortable doing it and that, you know, obviously the, the medical professionals were, 
we're obeying their recommendations. Yeah. I understand that. But anyways, uh, I just, I think there's something that maybe has been, I don't know if you take it for granted, but you realize how special it is when you, you get back to it. Yeah, no, it's, and, and just to touch on that, like we've evolved as humans to, to read and to, to feed off of energy and body language. And I noticed even for lunch, like there was like a sense of energy and I don't know if it was just the excitement of being together, but, but reading the body language, you know, cause a lot of people talk with their hands and, you know, it's just, you kind of feed off of each other. Um, and, and you're right. And, and that's one thing that like for myself, I love the ability to come back to the office and, and not necessarily because I work differently or whatever, but just to have that human interaction. Um, that's one thing that, you know, everyone's so hyped on, Oh, now we can work from home. And, you know, I know like Twitter, you know, all their people working from home, Facebook, you know, all these tech companies are now like, Hey, we're just as productive. And mind you, depending on, you know, I think it's case by case in different industries, but for our industry that we're such a, a people business, uh, I think it would be, it would be pretty challenging to, to tell everyone, you know, even just within our organization, like, okay, now you have to work from home. Like I enjoy coming in, you know, working with guys like yourself. And there's just that element of, of socializing and that human element that I think gets taken away from the, you know, when you do the whole remote thing. But, uh, I know we have an episode to talk about, but I wanted to add one more thing that yeah. you reminded me of. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, one of the famous things about Apple too, you know, their multi, what, five or $6 billion campus was, um, I think this goes all the way back to Bell Labs. One of the Bell Labs back in back in the day, one of the main things they had was they had really long corridors. Not on purpose, they just kind of did. Okay. But they found out their most innovative things happen not by the plan, but by people bumping into each other in the hallway and saying, "Hey, what have you been up to?" No way. And uh, so, anyways, Apple, like Steve Jobs, designed it with these long corridors so that you would have those opportune happenstance interactions where somebody would say, "Oh, I'm working on this." Oh, really? Huh. Well, I could take that and. And the whole idea was that that being at that office would facilitate innovation because of the chance interactions you would have with people, not the like scheduled project that the you know the money guys did a market survey and decided was the next big thing. Huh. And uh, so, from an innovation perspective, for me personally, like on the on the product side, talking to you guys, like, wow, we got a customer that's really worried about this. I mean, that's where most of our best ideas come from. Um, you know, I, I've. I remember at my old job explaining like uh, to it was you know big company they wanted to put everything on the schedule plan it out we came up with the ideas and then told the customers they were going to buy it and I, I I went with our new technology list and I said every single one of these products came from a customer saying if only yeah none of them came with us thinking we knew what they needed absolutely and so for me just from an innovation perspective I I mean. Not to say you can't get some good ideas by e-collaboration and searching the Twitterverse or whatever, yeah. <laughs> but um, that's one thing that I think is really important for me. Um, and it's hard because I'm not a big phone call guy. I like to be face to face, that sort of thing. So yeah. I probably need to be on the phone more to to kind of you know keep at it. And and then the converse of that is I just hope we can be together more and have more of those opportunities. Yeah. Because um, I think the next next big thing could is probably going to come from that. Yeah. So. No, it's, it's such a neat topic. And like you say, we do have a, uh, an episode to cover here, but, but interesting conversation nonetheless. And who knows if we were in the virtual world, we probably wouldn't have had this cool conversation. So exactly. Right on. Well, uh, talking about drilling fluids, that's what we do here. Um, Matt, there's been something that's been happening out there. And unless you, uh, you know, if you've lived under a rock for the last six months, you may not know, but uh, a lot of wells right now are being drilled and uncompleted, which we all know are ducks. 
um, something that, you know, is important for operators as they drill these wells and they basically suspend the completions of it. Um, they have to protect their pipe. Uh, so Matt, something that you brought up and actually it's something that I've been heavily involved with over the last couple of months with a couple of operators is, is trying to make sure that we provide technology and, and chemicals to, uh, inhibit any bit of corrosion that might happen or to protect the pipe, to make sure when they go back in, in a month, six months, a year that they can go ahead and, and, and carry on their operations. So Matt, uh, you know, I think it's important suspension and packer fluids. What do you think? I think it's a good one. I mean, obviously very timely. We've had several conversations over the weekend about it and, <laughs> you know, and other fairly urgent, uh, conversations and, and, um, it's just interesting because on the drilling side, nobody really thinks about it. Um, and the reason I feel like Packer fluids is tied into it is a lot of the concepts are the same. Mm -hmm. I looked through and it didn't really, I know we've talked about corrosion. We've, we've nibbled, but thought, well, why don't we just go through corrosion mitigation with respect to well suspension, uh, and what that looks like, um, on the drilling side when we get asked to do it and how it ties into the completion side when we would do it. So. Perfect. Well, let's start off with the suspension side of things, Matt. How what how would we be involved with any type of well suspension or you know any type of suspension fluid? Can you kind of briefly give an overview on the suspension side? Sure. So I I, I mean it could be at any time. We know I mean we know sometimes when we did our DWAP, uh, we talked about how sometimes you bring in a rig to drill your surface hole and then it moves on and uh, you might fill that, you're going to fill that up with a fluid of some kind to mitigate corrosion. And, um, sometimes it can be, it can be fairly basic. Uh, but as you go deeper, things get a little more extreme and there's a little bit more concern. Sure. One of the most common examples is in the Northeast. A lot of the times they will drill with, uh, air or foam. We've done an episode on that, yep. but they do air drilling and they set their casing. And then what they do is they actually load the hole with oil-based mud because they're going to drill the next interval with oil-based mud. And if they know they're coming back reasonably soon, if oil-based mud is oil continuous, so yeah, limits risk of corrosion. You know, actually, just now that you're talking about that, I do remember when I was in the Northeast, um, it was it was a nightmare, not a nightmare, but it, it took a lot of effort to make sure you understood logistically on like which holes were loaded because they would, it would, it'd be like, it'd be kind of, you know, how we do pad drilling or, um, you know, we'll batch drill. And so, yeah, that makes sense. And looking back, I don't remember what we did, but I always remember instead of just like displacing it with water, they would load it with old base mud or at the time it was ABS 40, our, you know, our, our system that we use up there a lot of times. And, um, but I don't remember there were there being issues, but now that you say that it, it just kind of, you know, kind of brushed the old memory bank there. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think for the most part, you know, there, it was a logistics issue where, look, you were going to, yeah, you were basically, uh, you know, in all likelihood, just bump the plug with oil-based mud or, or load it up right before you leave. But you've got, you've got a cement job, you're tested, you're, you're probably got a secondary barrier on top of the well. Anyways, so the fluid itself, how well it holds up, didn't matter as much as just it's easier to have it there logistics-wise than truck out a bunch of oil-based mud with a rig on location and and deal with all that while you're trying to drill out and, and get going. Mm -hmm. um, so, that I mean, that's a fairly common suspension method. And, and in and offshore, it happens all the time. Um, I will say that one of the most frustrating and persistent conversations I would have was, so 
if I put oil-based mud in the well, how long will it take for the bayrite to settle out and how fast? And can you tell me what my equivalent hydrostatic will be in six months? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's one of those, and I've seen, there was actually on the SPE bulletin board, somebody's like, oh, well, you can just put some mud in like an oven cell and measure how much it settles out over time. Like any mud company should be able to do that. It's like, if you're really making decisions based off of that, you are far more confident than myself. <laughs> um, but uh, all, all that being said, you know, it's, it's a fairly difficult thing to say because you have a higher temperature below, it's going to convect. There's, yeah. um, and the question is, is there a safety or you know, fluid barrier concern that if that does fall out, what are the risks? Um, right. other than having to stage in and try and circulate a, a bunch of bayrite that settled out. Well, a bayrite plug is pretty, I mean, that'll give you a pretty good amount of hydrostatic. So I guess I'm not a math guy by mm -hmm. any stretch of the imagination, but if you have, if you were to have a bunch of bayrite, say you've got like a 14 or 16 pound mud and let's say it does settle out, would your hydrostatic still be the same or would it change? No. So basically in, in essence, what happened is your well sort of got a little shallower. So you have your infill of solid bayrite, right? Okay. And then you have this light column above it. Makes sense. Um, and yeah. and some people say, oh, well, bayrite, you know, is a pretty good barrier. Well, yes, but it's not necessarily a reliable barrier for those types of things, right? Um, yeah, because so, you're not you're not applying the same amount of force throughout the well bore. You basically have no pressure, and then all of a sudden a bunch of solids. So yeah, I should have thought of that more before asking the question. But hey, there are such things as dumb questions. I just proved it. Hey, well, you know what? Someone else that thought crossed their mind and we got it covered for them. So, there you go. Um, yeah. So I, I guess like the oil-based mud, I, I don't want to overlook that, but, but sure. a lot of this stuff is, is um, you know, the, I, I think that that covers, you know, then we get to the ducks, if you will, which I've got all my casing intervals set in most, most of the time I might be expected for that, or I might be expecting for them to go frack the well next. Mm -hmm. um, or at the very least, somebody else is going to mess around with whatever's left. And as drilling guys, you know, we typically just leave some water behind and, and move on, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and when the expectation is, well, actually, this isn't getting fracked next month, it could be a year out. It could be six months. Right. Um, then, as you mentioned, we have some concerns about corrosion. Um, and, you know, that sort of ties into to packer fluids where you have a similar situation where you have a static fluid up against casing. Right. So packer fluid is, you know, for those of you that don't know, when we do a completion, normally, most of the time, we actually have a packer that um, is, is, it's basically like a, a donut. We'll call it that. Mm -hmm. And it's expanded. It's set at a certain depth in your casing closer down to where you would actually produce from the well. And then you run production tubing that will actually sting into the hole of that donut and the fluid between that tubing and, a, you know, kind of above the annulus between the production tubing above your donut, that, um, that needs some sort of pressure seal. Right. And so, uh, and, and well, it's, you're supposed to be isolated. Normally people want some amount of hydrostatic pressure back there, but there's also the risk of corrosion there, both against the casing and against the production tubing. Right. So packer fluids are the fluids that sit back there and, and most of the, you know, they're, they're, they can be as basic as you can imagine, and the more extreme you get, it can be pretty challenging to come up with something that you can confidently state will work. Right. But a lot of the chemistry we use for suspension fluids is the same as Packer fluids, and the thing about Packer fluid chemistry is it's designed to last a very long time. 
Gotcha. The reason being that I don't go, I don't intend to work over a well every 18 months. A lot of times the expectations of service life should be 10 years or more. Right. Um, because the next time I would change out that fluid would be when I go to pull production tubing or, you know, something along those lines. Gotcha. So, I mean, with regards to the requirements of the packer fluid or the well suspension fluids, there's obviously sort of, some, you know, boxes that you have to check, right? Yeah. Can you talk about some of those? Yeah. So, I mean, we mentioned corrosion. I think we, we have to break that down just in a couple of different ways. One is most of our casing is carbon steel, which from a general corrosion perspective doesn't fail catastrophically. It will corrode, but um, it doesn't it doesn't fail catastrophically. It's fairly soft and ductile um, relative to, for example, production tubing, where production tubing sometimes, because it's designed to accept all of the gas and acidic hydrocarbons, anything that could be flowing up that production tubing, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you can get into some pretty exotic corrosion-resistant metallurgy. Uh, High chrome, steel, that kind of thing gets fairly expensive. And you also have temperature cycling because you bring the well on production and you might have some hot fluid flowing up through there. Right. And then you shut in the well to do something. And so it's going to expand and contract and it's hanging off of, you know, your tubing hanger. So it's, it's hanging, it can expand and contract. It's subject to some pretty extreme environments on opposite sides, on the inside of the pipe and on the outside of the pipe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can run into what's called stress corrosion crack, where instead of, Instead of having this general corrosion failure, it, the, the metallurgy is so brittle that it sort of just collapses. Uh, so when you see pictures of this, most people I talk to are terrified because they've seen the pictures, not yeah. how frequently it happens. <laughs> yeah. But when you have stress corrosion cracking, it's, you'll know it when you see it. Um, but the whole the production tubing basically shatters in, in a certain mm. area or splits along the edge. Obviously, you have to shut in the well and do a lot of other things, which is a big problem. No you kidding. may have trouble killing it because you can't just pump down the tubing. Um, lots and lots of problems we want to avoid. But um, that's sort of the extreme distinction is when we're just talking about protecting casing, it's general corrosion. It's probably not going to collapse like that due to corrosion. It would be to subsurface stresses or something like that. Um, but then, you know, the other part of that is the density requirement, right? So okay. in some cases, I may not have a bunch of pore pressure, don't care, cement's good, we've tested it, we, we we're, you know, going to put uh, a wellhead on top or a tree on top of it anyways, and, and we're going to frack it later anyways. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, maybe it's just fresh water. Right. Uh, but then it gets more and more extreme where if you need some higher density, you could be using calcium bromide, zinc bromide, cesium formate. Um, and those are heavy, expensive fluids, um, and their compatibility with additives will, will vary. Sure. Um, but anyway, so, you, so Brian, a lot of folks out in, you know, most unconventional stuff we do, it's usually like 3% KCL. Everybody just feels good about 3% KCL. I think the argument is if it goes into the formation, it's a little inhibitive. Um, the converse of that is 3 to 4% by weight KCL or sodium chloride is the most corrosive salinity you can have okay um and so when i when i worked in azerbaijan we had these uh conductors that were hammered in and we'd suspend them for long periods of time and uh you ever flown a helicopter across the southern caspian sea uh you could see that the soviets were not kind to the environment (laughs) um it's a lot of sheen and a lot of very old derricks and dang it's 
it's kind of like in a way troubling to see uh, just from an environmental perspective. But the bacteria that survived are real survivors. <laughs> and, <laughs> no uh, they so, deserve to last. Yeah. Bit. So they're pretty resilient as far as, you know, producing H2S and acid gases. Wow. Um, and so I learned a lot about trying to kill bacteria in those suspension fluids, but we would use Caspian seawater because it was free and available. And no it had about, and the Caspian Sea is not really, a, it's more like a lake as far as salinity. Hmm. Um, I, I, well, I say that, although, you know, there's the interesting, that, that's an interesting point. Politically, it's a huge debate as far as if it's actually called a lake, then the oil rights and everything are different oh, yeah. than if it's, so there, uh, I got to be careful what I say or I'm going to upset somebody. Well, I guess that's true everywhere, but that, that's sort of a political hot potato. Ah, um, interesting. I learned but, something new today. Yeah. So uh, anyways, all, all that being said, uh, you know, you had this salinity that was brackish, really favorable to bugs, and they were really hard to kill up front. Um, yeah. And so we would have, the, the main issue we had wasn't that the conductors corroded, it was that we'd have pretty high levels of H2S. Um, coming out from under the conductors when we when they lifted the cap to continue drilling ahead. Okay. Um, but uh, that's another hazard is even if if you're just you know got a few of these, you can produce some hydrogen sulfide, which can be very corrosive. Certainly. And corrosive in an isolated spot where it can create a lot of damage, or if you go to treat it, it could hurt someone. Yeah. So, so. it sounds like I mean, you obviously there's some cert- there's certainly some plan, and there's no one fi- one size fits all because each case could be completely different, right? But I mean, so let's maybe talk about, you know, bringing it back home a little bit here on say the unconventionals, um, when you're drilling wells and not completing them, what are some of the additives that would be important for a suspension fluid? Uh, And more, more specifically for, let's say we we run production pipe and we displace, you know, cement with our, with our, let's just assume fresh water. What are some of the components that get, would be introduced to something like that? So the typical playbook, if you will, is um, is uh, I call it Bosco, um, biocide oxygen scavenger corrosion inhibitor, okay. um, and you know there's there's plenty of discussion, but but typically you know biocides. I think one thing people don't realize is biocides provide like a good initial kill of bacteria, right? But it leaving them down there doesn't like oh if if I left a little behind, the biocide will get it. It's now, it sort of gets used up. And so you could have, it may delay the onset of bacteria, but for the most part, that's one reason you want to kill everything at surface before you pump it. So if you were to set a cap or whatever the technical term is, how would, like, would there, would bacteria be able to be reintroduced into that environment or? Hopefully not, because hopefully you're static and isolated enough. Yeah. Um, you know the 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 converse risk is if you had a leak in your in a packer fluid, for example, and you know something from the reservoir came up into the annulus oh, or yeah. something like that. But I got you. Um, typically, the main thing is kill those bugs so that they can't produce sulfites, CO two, the the kinds of things that you know produce H two S, acid gases, and things that create other problems. So got it. Same same deal as far as oxygen scavenger. Um, Typically, it's if I have low dissolved oxygen, I can hopefully reduce the risk of oxygen corrosion. Mm-hmm. Um, though the only time I'm introducing is when I pump it down hole. Right. right. So that's another one where th- these chemicals are cheap. 
to me just use it right um the you know it, it other people may disagree but i will acknowledge that you know there is the question of i'm not circulating so how much oxygen am i really going to introduce fair enough fine yeah um you saved several gallons of ammonium bisulfide and <laughs> right. may, that's all that probably matters now yeah no um, kidding every penny counts right yeah and, and then you know the main product is you can use when we've talked about corrosion mitigation before one thing you can do is uh you can use a filming amine which the reason you don't use that in a, a drilling environment nearly as much is because they don't stay on as soon as you they form such a thin layer of basically like an oil wet coating mm-hmm but they form such a thin layer that anything, anytime you start circulating, you wash it off. However, here you can spot it in place, come out of the hole, and and you have enough residue there that it doesn't get spent, and it it can stay there and and provide that coating. So that's one of the most important additives. Mm-hmm. And then the other things we can do are are you know good practices. Jack up the pH, right? right. Um, that'll buy buy you some time. Um, you know, I, I think when we've talked about how, what do I do to uh, for Long-term suspension, if, if we have a customer that wants to store Enerlite or direct emulsion for a long time, well, it's saturated brine with a reasonably high pH um, with diesel in it, and <laughs> yeah. there's, there's not a ton of, there's not a lot of things that will do very well. Um, maybe the Azerbaijani Caspian <laughs> bacteria, but, uh, yeah. but it, it, it would, it, it's just, it's not a favorable environment, and even at when you have saturated brine, it doesn't accommodate dissolved oxygen very well. Like there's, there's a lot of reasons you can just leave that stuff for a while and, and it does fine. Makes sense. Um, and so similarly, if, if you're doing a packer fluid, just tying it in. Yeah. A, a high density brine versus 3% KCL, uh, a saturated brine is, is less likely to accommodate bugs, less likely to have any dissolved oxygen. Um, so a lot of times, sometimes they'll just jack up the pH, throw in a filming amine, color good. Mm. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of decision to be made, but, but the playbook is when you're going to mix this, when you're, when you're going to pump this stuff, you know, get your biocide in there, kill the bugs, um, add your corrosion inhibitor last minute add that oxygen scavenger, hopefully, you know, below surface with an injection line or something and, and pump it away. Yeah. Um, and that works for most packer fluids and, and or most brine based packer fluids and, and most other additives. If you can get away with it, base oil isn't corrosive, so that's one thing. It's just very, very light. Yeah, uh, normally won't meet the density requirements. Sure, and it's relatively expensive if you're comparing the price to water. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, the water's a little bit more readily available. Um, so with regards to actually, you know, the, the application side of it, more on, on the operation side, mixing and placement. Is there anything tricky or anything that we need to take note of um, before actually, or you know, while applying this kind of stuff? So, uh, I mean, not really. I think I mentioned getting the oxygen scavenger pumped. Uh, as you mentioned, a, a lot. Of, I think the, the main thing is minimize contamination. E- make it easy on yourself for logistics. Uh, yeah. You don't want a bunch of waste from excess volume from interface. So if you can bump a plug with it, if you can, um, you know, on the completion side of things, a lot of times what they'll do is it'll be the last thing they do. They, they run production tubing. And they'll they'll pump it down the tubing and up the annulus, or actually pump it down the annulus up into the tubing. Uh, correction there, and then sting into the packer, and they know the thing is loaded, and they don't. It doesn't require that much volume, right? And so, uh, in the grand scheme of things, as far as mixing, it's doing that in the right order. Um, and I will share my one 
I'm a, I'm not bitter, but I maybe I haven't gotten over this appropriately. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we were we had a, a treatment where we were using uh, ammonium bisulfite and glutaraldehyde yeah. for. Um, I think this was a Packer fluid. Yes, it had to have been a Packer fluid. Anyways, I got a you know one of these alarmed emails. Hey, uh, did you know that you mixed these that these two chemicals are incompatible and create a precipitate which could damage the formation? And I was like, uh, well, I didn't know that, but I've never seen that before, so I don't know what you're talking about. And lo and behold, what it turns out is, um, when you treat, for example, well, specifically with glutaraldehyde and ammonium bisulfite. The glutaraldehyde interacts with bugs, and, and you know, if there's anything there, it pretty much sort of uh, changes its form. But then if you add the oxygen scavenger immediately it, and it, it, to fresh water that doesn't have any bugs, i.e. if someone's in a lab mixing two products, um, you'll see that precipitation. But you'll, you'll, you never see it in the field because there's always a little something there. Yeah. And so um, then the question was well, what were you doing mixing these products? And, oh, it wasn't us. It was one of your competitors. <laughs> what was our competitor doing mixing our products? And then I didn't get any more emails. But right, yeah. it, it had me in a panic for a little while and a little bit mystified. Um, and there are other additives. Uh, erythrobate salt is compatible. Um, you know, there's considerations with the brines. Some of these additives don't like calcium. Mm. Um, all that fun stuff. But uh, the, the playbook's pretty pretty basic but that was one of those on the mixing thing where it was like actually in a lab i did try it myself and it i saw a little something it wasn't that bad but it was there yeah um but anyways that that's just a note the field things work a little different with some of these additives um you know so i mean it is at the end of the day we're mostly trying to mitigate corrosion and get something that lasts a long time right but i think there are because we've had more questions from customers in particular about this lately one thing i don't think they're there's a little bit of wow we've never done this before and it's like right but the chemistry we're using has been around for forever yeah uh so i it's I, I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel here. Sure. Um, because the the products are pretty well proven, or at least the base chemistry that we're using is is pretty well proven. Yeah. Uh, How important is and with the amount of volumes we're talking about, I don't think it's as likely, but let's say you have quite a bit of volume and there the idea is well, let's just pump it all, all ahead of time and and it'll kind of coat the pipe and we'll be good, versus like having it sort of dispersed throughout the whole displacement fluid does this is the uniformity of of how it's being applied like let's say you're pumping at a certain rate mm-hmm. do you want to be injecting it at a certain rate or can you just uh, dump it in a tank and let her go down whole like is there a certain method that that's more favorable or, or is as long as it's in the fluid itself or kind of reaches the whole well bore you know what i mean like because i've had that yeah. question so i mean i would want the corrosion inhibitor blended throughout just because it's got to coat everything so everything it I want I want the same concentration touching everything as it right. as it goes down. Um, you know the oxygen scavenger. That's a good point. Is you've got to figure out some kind of a rate that relative to how fast I'm pumping, I'm injecting the amount that I need. Mm-hmm. Um, but once again, you're uh, I, the how critical it is. You're pumping more than you need. Um, how critical it is. It's probably not. It's probably not huge. Um, and then the bio side, I throw that in first, and 
I just want that homogenous because I want to make sure I killed everything. Yeah. So, I mean, for the most part, I wouldn't, I, I don't, I'm reluctant to do anything on the fly uh, from that perspective, but not to say you couldn't with those, you just probably would use more product than if you just mixed it in a pit because I, th- I think you'd overdo it making sure you were getting it right. Sure. No, that makes sense. Uh, so with anything that we do here in on the drilling side and the oil field in general, there's always special cases. And if anyone has some, I'm sure you do. So are there any special cases that you can come up with or that you know about with regards to suspension and pack fluids? So the one thing that we haven't covered, and I, and I think the literature is, it's a mixed bag for good reason, is fluids called insulating packer fluids. Hmm. Um, and so insulating packer fluids are not only acting as packer fluids to mitigate corrosion, but they are also designed to insulate. <laughs> um, and, and where these are used is, is basically they're low thermal conductivity fluids with the idea that, um, let's say I, I'm producing fairly hot fluid and I'm up in Canada and I drilled through the permafrost and now I'm, I, I produce this fluid and it's actually heating up the formation and melting the permafrost around me. Then I could have subsidence, collapse my well, that sort of thing. So in all likelihood, my packer fluid, what I want is something that keeps that heat in. Oh, yeah. Similarly, uh, some things might wax out as they cool off. And if you can keep the heat in the produced fluid, it'll keep flowing. Mm. Um, Mm. So uh, other places you'll see it in deep water for hydrate mitigation. Um, And basically, uh, the idea is got that riser and everything could get cooler and cooler and so if you can keep the fluid warm if it could keep itself warm without interacting with the seabed temperature yeah then um it will not form hydrates interesting Uh, the other really hot topic is what you call annular pressure buildup where you have pressure in a casing annulus so the idea is what if i left one of these fluids there that didn't allow a lot of heat communication because it may be that if i can keep that consistent i don't end up with expansion and contraction that throws me off and shows pressure building in the annulus, which from a well integrity perspective is monitored pretty closely. Interesting. So um, my whole thing with these is, and and they can be as basic as just pumping base oil. A lot of times there you might actually viscosify the base oil so that it can't convect um, because thin fluids will circulate heat. And so put something thick in there and it won't, it can't do that. Um, so it's another mechanism of heat transfer. Um, my whole thing with those is there a lot of, a lot of companies I know have put some research into it. They were sort of a hot topic a while ago. They're expensive and I don't think anybody's been able to show that they'll last for 10 years or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's, it's okay. I can, I can mix these formulations and if they still look the same as they did after six months, well, I still tied up one of my ovens in the lab for a while, but I feel good. but can I go sell this now to a customer saying it's going to last 10 years or more and because they want the guarantee that I'm never going to have to go back to the well because it failed and do a workover, especially in some extreme environment, deep water, what have you, spend millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so total reliance on the fluids has, has really um, you know, been an issue. And, and uh, the water-based ones are typically brine with glycol, and glycol inhibits, you know, thermal conductivity. But gotcha. once again, you got a viscosifier that's got to keep it together. You got it's it's very challenging, um, and it's challenging to prove that they're going to last as long as they're going to last. So, like um, other technologies, I think have done better. Once vacuum insulated tubing, same way you have a vacuum insulated thermos, 
uh, at least originally, and I think they've addressed this now, but you still had uh, heat transfer at the connections. Oh, so yeah. vacuum insulate tubing was very expensive. Then you thread it together and you still have some heat transfer every 30 feet or whatever a joint of production tubing was. Mm. Um, and so those guys became, you know, the insulating packer fluid people's friends because it could, it could inhibit the effect there. Yeah. And vacuum insulate tubing is crazy expensive. Oh, I can imagine. Um, but uh, all that being said, um, you know, the best application I saw was really for well testing, where if you were actually going to flow back a well for a while, you could, you could use it, but it didn't need to last for 10 or 15 years. Right. Um, but insulating packer fluids exist. There's literature out there. Um, they're an interesting technology that I think it's just hard to offer the guarantees that are expected of them. And, you know, relative to the cost, it's a bit of a, um, a tough proposition. But that being said, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's something for the niche where they are, they are useful. Um, the technology could grow. Yeah. Um, so... I thought it was, I, I thought it, I think that's one that's a special case worth pointing out as we talk about all this other stuff, that there's a family of these other things you may never encounter, right? but it's out there. Yeah. So. No kidding. Well, uh, I'm glad you could touch on it. So man, I mean, that's, I think we covered it pretty well, Matt. I mean, other than, you know, is there any closing last words that you have or any other thoughts that people can walk away with? No, I, th- I think this, I hope we made it pretty basic and straightforward. The, the biggest thing I want to emphasize, when, especially if, if you're one of those folks who hasn't encountered this before, is a lot of the chemistry is, is pretty well known. And at least, well, I'll, say, I'll speak for AES. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty confident in what we're doing. We have a sister company, uh, JCAM Catalyst, that does this stuff all the time as well. We, we work together for the drilling side. Um, and so uh, as much as somebody hasn't come across it doesn't mean people haven't been fighting the fight of corrosion and, and these applications for a long time. Certainly. And so we will get through this and we can lean on the learnings of the past to avoid doing a bunch of extra work right now. Most definitely. Well, uh, if anyone has any other questions with regards to the topic today, hit us up on LinkedIn or at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. Matt? It was great to get back in the studio with you and uh, to see your, you know, your magical face here behind the mic. And for all the listeners out there, certainly appreciate the show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and do us a huge favor. Leave a review, five-star preferably. Uh, and again, the engagement, the questions, we, uh, we certainly invite all of it. So, uh, Matt, with that being said, have a good one, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.